Hi guys, this is Tasha McNerney. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Anesthesia Nerds, the podcast. And today I am joined by a doctor by the name of Cassie Jansen. And Cassie is a D-A-C-V-E-C-C, so she's got a lot of letters after her name. She is a boarded uh, criticalist, right? So boarded in emergency and critical care. She went to the Ohio State University and then did a residency here in Philadelphia at Penn. And we are gonna talk about some different pain management options when it comes to dealing with trauma cases. So thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. So Cassie, what we were talking about, you and I talking about beforehand is how can we best make sure that these patients that come in that have polytrauma, that have been hit by a car, you know, if, if I'm in a GP or I'm in a small practice, maybe even a rural practice, what are some things I can do to make sure pain management wise and just overall stability, I'm going to make sure I have the best patient outcome. So let's say uh, our case for today with you and your expertise is that I have a three-year-old uh, Labrador retriever, of course, it's not neutered, so it got out of the yard, and it has now been hit by a car. Um, and I'm seeing it, you know, in my general practice. So really, first line, what are some things that we could do for this patient, and how can we make sure that this patient stays comfortable and is not in an excruciating amount of pain, especially if we think that there are fractures somewhere, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, as probably most of you guys know, you never know what's going to walk through the door wherever you're at, even if it's a GP practice. Um, if you're if you're open, the the options are inevitable to get something that's really sick coming in off the off the street. So, um, and sometimes it could be definitely uh, nerve wracking um, when you have something like a hit by a car come in. Um, I think the first thing you know with any trauma, it's always to go back to your ABCs and stabilization. Um, you know, you always want to make sure they're as stable as possible moving forward. Always give them oxygen, um, and then start kind of a, a standardized assessment of these guys, just to make sure you know you have a good thorough assessment. So when we talk about like you know we if we start them on oxygen, mm-hmm. um, and then we're placing our catheters, we're usually getting fluids going, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, so just just so everybody's on the same page, just because sometimes we see this back and forth mm-hmm. um, in certain groups online. Um, we just start out with the shock dose fluids, and if so, what are today's shock dose fluids? Insert air quotes. Yeah, yeah, so um, my my standard for most hit by cars is still gonna be your, your good old fashioned isotonic crystalloid. So your LRS, your Normar. Um, certainly you could use saline, but I, I prefer the LRS, the Normar is more physiologic. Um, and then these guys will usually do a 20 or to 30 mil per kg IV bolus if you think they're hypotensive and need resuscitation or in shock and need resuscitation, which most of these guys are, even if it's just from a, a little adrenal squeeze and stress there, they'll come in often really shocky after that experience. So um, I usually start with a quarter to a third of a shock dose in a young, otherwise you know previously healthy patient. Um, my other favorites as far as fluids goes, especially if you have a dog that you could suspect could have head trauma um, or a dog where you want to try to do a smaller volume of resuscitation to get started, I'm really a huge fan of hypertonic saline, so about a 7.5% solution which you can buy and have Mm -hmm. on hand or make yourself if you have like a 23%. But I like that because it could help both with head trauma and decreasing cerebral edema, um, but it also gives you really, really rapid volume resuscitation quickly in these guys and hopefully can get you in a good start. Um, So, Okay, awesome. So let's say... We've, we're doing this all really quickly, you know, mm-hmm. so this is somebody's getting the catheter, somebody is getting the fluids going, someone is providing the oxygen, we're getting our vitals. 
And then hopefully someone's assessing pain, mm-hmm. you know, as part of that. So we've established, yep, this patient has a fractured femur. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can see that. Um, or maybe, you know, if it has a bone sticking out, God forbid, you know, something, we, we might see something like that. Uh, I'm sure that working in yeah. emergency critical care, you've seen a lot of instances of trauma. So we've determined, of course, this patient has got to be in some level of pain. What's your go-to as far as analgesics? Yeah, so um, I think with any trauma or critical case, my go-to is usually going to be uh, a pure opioid for multiple reasons. One, um, they're relatively safe as far as relations with blood pressure and heart rate and things like that, and you don't want to compromise any sort of you know, perfusion or delivery of oxygen to your tissues as much as possible. Um, I also like them because if you give a pure mu, you know, a hydromorphone or methadone, which is my favorite, but not as commonly Mm -hmm. found, or uh, morphine, you can reverse a pyramid. And so if for some reason that doesn't go over well with your patient, you could always give a small amount of naloxone or reversal to to get that hopefully back to where you want to be stability-wise. I know that a lot of practices have, you know, buprenorphine or butorphanol, and certainly they're good in in certain situations, but I try to avoid them with trauma, one, because you can't easily reverse them, and B, I don't find that their pain control is as good as with a pure mu, and so it's something that I can more better titrate to what I need it to be um, using a pure mu. Okay, excellent. So let's say that we're going to keep going along with this hypothetical hit by car Mm -hmm. Labrador that has come into our practice. So let's say we aren't a 24-hour referral practice. We might not be able to ship this patient to a referral practice for quite some time. Mm -hmm. So the patient appears to be, and I'm again, appears in air quotes, appears to be stable. And so our doctors are thinking, you know what? I think before maybe what we'll do is we will, what is it called? When you like, you know, you set the bone and then we're going to bandage it and we're going to make it stable. I don't, I don't. I should know this from being in with the orthopedics, but I don't. You know, whatever you do with the bandages, that's what we're going to do. So, um, but of course, you know, mm-hmm. under just hydromorphone, mm-hmm. the patient isn't going to let us do that. So mm-hmm. now we have to think, if we have to sedate this patient even further, mm-hmm. what are some things we need to look out for? What are some of our options? Because mm-hmm. I think most commonly, a lot of practices are very comfortable with using things like dexmedetomidine, like acepromazine, mm-hmm. to further the sedation. But in this instance, we don't want to use drugs like that. Can you speak to why that would be? Yeah. So certainly, kind of we were talking about before with trauma patients, um, they can be, be very fragile. They can be unstable. And they can also trick you. And so often these guys are kind of walking a fine line where they might look pretty stable. But once you start putting them under anesthesia, all of their compensation and everything that their body is doing to maintain perfusion as best as possible to their tissues um, can quickly fall away with anesthetic with anesthesia, and so uh, we want to be very cautious with our plans. And so, although I'm a big proponent of drugs like dexmedetomidine, that probably wouldn't be my first choice in these guys, because I would certainly want to, I wouldn't want to risk decreased perfusion to to certain tissues, you know, namely things like your kidneys and things like that. You you want to maintain perfusion as much as possible to your tissues, and so you want to avoid that initial vasoconstriction if possible. I do like it that it's reversible, so if it's something that you end up doing, understandable. But um, I, I do worry, and, and same with things like acepromazine, it's not a reversible medication. And so if we're going to cause potential hypotension in a healthy patient with acepromazine, you know, think about your trauma patient that might, you know, be kind of just 
hanging on an edge right now, you know, it's got some fluids, it still has a ways to go, and then you give it something that prevents the body from doing its natural compensation and and oxygen delivery. So I try to really be safe. I think opioids are definitely your friend in the situation. If you do need to do general anesthesia, even drugs like propofol could quickly quickly, quickly um, cause decompensation between decreased, between apnea, decreased like respirations that could also lead change your ventilation, which can certainly affect dogs with head trauma and things like that, and certainly hypotension on top of it. I mean, so you have to be very careful with most of your anesthesia in these guys. So usually I'll do opioids. This might be when I pull out a, a benzo. However, as we all know, those they, dogs can still be unpredictable mm-hmm. with those. So hopefully that'll just give you enough edge where you might be able to do a little bit more or even do the smallest amount of inhalant to get that bandage on um, if you're looking at trying to to do a splint or something like that prior to transfer. Okay. Splint, that's it. That's what I was trying to think of. I was like, you know, the thing, the thing and the bone. I was wondering if you were looking for like reduction and I was like, wow, you're getting real fancy. <laughs> no, no, I don't get that fancy. It was ortho stuff. Um, so that brings up another good point because uh, when I go out and I talk to people, there still is this thought that, you know, if we layer in injectables, mm-hmm. then the patient maybe can't handle it. So what I've heard for some people is that instead, if they have to do something like this on a maybe on the edge dog or mm-hmm. a critical patient, they will use the inhalant mask and they'll mask them down or mm-hmm. they'll box down cats like, mm-hmm. which, you know, you you know how I feel about that. But, you know, if they thought, I don't want to give them any injections mm-hmm. or I don't want to layer on this and I, I'm just going to mask them down, mm-hmm. like, what are your thoughts on that? So I agree in general with your boxing and things like that, but really inhalants, if you're looking for a drug that's going to cause vasodilation and cardiac depression and decrease your cardiac output, you know, inhalants are probably one of the worst offenders. And although I think they're great, I think in general with trauma, I would try to use a lot more intravenous anesthesia than less. Um, And so if you need to do, if you're doing a longer procedure, let's say it's going beyond your, your splinting and you're doing a more definitive treatment, doing opioid infusions to help decrease your MAC or other pain control, things like ketamine and stuff that can be very helpful in certain instances to help decrease that. Um, but I would I would very much avoid masking down or boxing down because we do have better options for these guys. Okay. And when you say infusions, you're mm-hmm. talking about constant rate yes. infusions mm-hmm. of something like an opioid. So putting mm-hmm. them on maybe a hydro CRI or mm-hmm. maybe even like a an FLK or an yep. HLK, exactly, um, or maybe even an MLK. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking if we are out in a practice that, again, we're, we're, we maybe not have some of these other opioids at our disposal, mm-hmm. as far as cost effectiveness, um, an MLK drip can mm-hmm. be great for multimodal analgesia and then very cost effective. Exactly. So mm-hmm. are you using lidocaine very often as a CRI and, you know, in your emergency patients mm-hmm. or your critical patients? And if so, when do you bust out that drug or when do you feel like it's really beneficial? Yeah. Um, I like lidocaine and I do think um, local blocks, if you're comfortable doing them in a, in a case like this, is also a great option. Again, you know, if you're comfortable. Mm-hmm. I do pull out lidocaine a lot as, as far as multimodal. Sometimes I might hesitate a little bit more than ketamine, only because of GI stuff. I find mm-hmm. like they don't want to eat as much. I use it more in my ICU than I certainly do for my in ER. Um, just because usually I'm starting with the opioid and then adding on. And so by the time they come to ICU, that might be when I'm adding on my lidocaine to add a little bit more. But I do I do use it quite frequently, especially in trauma patients. Uh, I'm a, an FLK fan, um, <laughs> but I've used MLK and HLK um, with 
not so reckless abandon in the past and I'm very happy with those results too if that's what you have yeah excellent so I think it's about using you know what are the best options you have on your show exactly so let's say unfortunately mm-hmm. the practice does not have pure mu opioids mm-hmm. all we have is butorphanol or buprenorphine mm-hmm. where are we going to go then I think from a pain control standpoint buprenorphine is probably going to be better Torb, it has some pain control, but I find that sometimes for visceral pain it's helpful, but usually I use it for more of a sedative, and then it's short, you know, at least short-lived. Buprenorphine, you know, certainly considering higher doses um, if you're going to use it, and just knowing that once you do use it, you're you're not going to, you're going to have it for quite some time. You're going to have it for a little bit. Yeah. You're making a commitment. Um, yes. But again, if that's what you have, <laughs> if that's your heaviest hitter, then you're yeah, going to go with it. exactly. That. And I, I think that's fine. And I never, you know, when I do have referrals come in on buprenorphine, it completely makes sense to me why they're on it. You know, I would rather have a, a dog, you know, a hundred times over come in on buprenex for pain control than no pain control whatsoever. Right. Excellent. So you bring up a good point is, mm-hmm. you know, when these come in from the referral center. Um, but what we were talking before is that, being here in a specialty and referral hospital as you are, you are open to GPs calling you up if they need mm-hmm, advice certainly. or they have cases that they may not be able to refer. Mm-hmm. So do you take phone calls often from yeah, general practitioners? Yeah, certainly we um, we always have the quote-unquote bat phone, and so certainly I welcome calls from referring vets all the time, you know, and I have to say a lot of them aren't even for referrals. They're just, you know, I need someone to talk to about this case. Like, they can't come over or you know, X, Y, and Z reason why they're like, this case is here now and I just need some advice to talk it through. And I'm so open to that um, because that's why we're here. It's, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, I specialize to, to help these guys out because certainly not everyone can make it to a referral hospital, um, unfortunately, or fortunately as it is. And certainly a lot of these cases can be handled um, by, you know, by primary care doctors. Yes. So everyone, utilize your local specialist and referral uh, people. They are here for you. Uh, they want to talk to you to improve patient care. Uh, again, even if they don't come over, um, I'm always available mm-hmm. for questions. I mean, I'm on the interwebs all the time answering questions, but it's nice to know that you can call up your local emergency mm-hmm. and critical care doctor or even dermatologist mm-hmm. and get some information. Well, that's about the time we have, and I thank you so much for hanging out with us and talking about anesthesia, pain management, and trauma, and uh, I hope to see you again on the podcast. Thanks, Cassie. Thanks again.